I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. George Elliot Clark joins me now. He recently published a new book, Where Beauty Survived, an Africadian Memoir. It is a fascinating book, one that looks at his early life in the black Canadian community in Halifax, Nova Scotia. It is a proud heritage with distinguished members of the family from both parents. It's also a complicated family, and uh, the emotional stress in his immediate family between his parents as well as his parents and Clark and his uh, siblings provide insight into racism and how uh, race is perceived in George's formative years. His mother, Jerry, and father, Bill, are often captivating characters. We'll get him to tell us about his memories of community and get his thoughts on legacy. George Elliott Clark is a poet, novelist, playwright, screenwriter, librettist, and scholar. He is a professor of African-Canadian literature at the University of Toronto, an officer of the Order of Canada. He was appointed Canada's seventh parliamentary poet laureate in 2016. This uh, book is published by Knopf. We taped this interview in mid-August. I reached him at his home in Toronto. Please welcome uh, to the Plant Online Program, George Elliott Clark. Professor Clark, good morning. Oh, good morning. It's such a delight to be here. No, no, it's nice to talk to you. Um, where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in the city of Halifax, uh, to be precise, in the north end of Halifax in the 1960s. So, so um, I'll ask you about Halifax in just a second, but when you evoke uh, um, Windsor Plains, the countryside of your youth, um, it, it's so loving and nostalgic at the same time. It's, it's a part of the country I've never seen, but um, you take us there in this book, and it's, it's so evocative. How, how would you describe it if, 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 if um, you were put on the spot, say, in an interview? Well, since I'm being put on the spot in the interview, <laughs> let me just say immediately that, okay, yes, of course there's winter, uh, and everything looks uh, wintry, and the trees are bare, and so on. But generally, three-mile plains, five-mile plains, to me, it's always lush. Mm. It's always fertile. It's, it's always lots of abundance of vegetables and fruits, pear trees, apple trees, crab apple trees, blackberry bushes, anthills, hazelnut bushes, um, and, and always lettuce and carrots and cabbage and turnips and, and uh Plenty of food, uh, chicken, and, and, and hog, for crying out loud, and mm. not to mention, of course, milk and ice cream, and, and like all the candies and chips and, and barbecue, hickory sticks, and whatnot. So to me, it's, it's always seemed to be a place of great plenitude yeah. and, and lushness. And, and, and uh, winter is... is um, only disappointing in the, in the sense that that there's a temporary interruption of of that uh, brilliant fecundity of that of that landscape. Uh, my my uh, sister Canadian writer uh, uh, colleague in that sense, Margaret Atwood, has quite uh, famous, famously talked about how uh, Canada to her, and of course she grew up in Northern Ontario. Uh-huh has, has uh, tended to be a place of, of uh, a little more barrenness and sure. a little more danger and a little more uh, violence and so on. But for me, in my nick of the woods or where I grew up, uh, uh, and I basically I grew up in Halifax, so I used to visit uh, up home in Windsor and uh, Three Mile Plains all the time. It, w- it was just totally contradictory to that. Uh, 
just a, a, a lot of of everything good that I could ever imagine or desire as a child. It's it's so beautiful to read because, as I said a moment ago, it's not a place that I've been to, but I feel like I've been to, having read your book. Uh, even even that moment early on where you talk about having butter for the first time. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, um, you know, my my father was somebody who liked to economize. Uh-huh. And so we always had margarine. Sure, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but this one particular day, uh, I think I was seven, and summer of 67, my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, made me a chicken sandwich with butter. And I was so struck by it, the flavor of that. I was like, wow, what is this, Nanny? And she said, butter. I, I had thought I had always been eating butter, of mm-hmm. course, right? <laughs> but, uh, no, she set me straight. Yeah. And and I think after that it was kind of difficult to go back to margarine. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the, the at one point of the book you talk about um, how um, your life was uh, happy as well as hellish. Um, when did you realize, uh, uh, George, that that um, your your life was different from say the experience of, of of what being black is like for someone who lives in the city? I mean, did you feel it at, uh, growing up at, at, for, for most of the, the early years, say, that, that you were raceless? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a strange thing to say uh, uh, because of the fact race was always all around us, uh-huh. uh, my brothers and I. Uh, but our parents didn't really accent it or focus on it very much. Uh, it was just part of the way we lived. I'll, just to give a quick example, uh, my mom... Uh, was part black, part indigenous, and and from uh, Windsor, Three Mile Plains. But she looked white. She had uh-huh. uh, three siblings who definitely had more color than she had. So she just happened to look white. But her her understanding of herself was very soulful, very black. And she loved black music and black cuisine and black ways of speech and 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 so on. Um, and she didn't. She didn't harp on it. She didn't say, "Oh, I'm black and this and that and everything." She just lived the way she was. And in contrast, my father was definitely black, visibly black, mm-hmm. but his uh, cultural outlook was more European, more British. And and uh, and so I had I had a lot of black culture coming from my mom. I had a lot of mainstream. European culture coming from my father, and neither of them really focused too much on what it meant for my brothers and I to be colored, to be Negro, to be black. You know, we 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 uh, we were aware of the civil rights movement, uh, which we favored, of course. But in the North End of Halifax, we already had integration. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were plenty of blended families, black, white, interracial couples, and and mixed race children, and and so on. And, so we played with kids of all complexions and never re- never heard the N-word because everybody knew that if anybody wanted to call somebody else that word, they'd probably get beaten up really mm. badly. So um, so we were aware of racial difference. I, at least I think I was. As a, as, I definitely was as a, as a child. On the other hand, it didn't seem to really define mm. our lives uh, for us in any particular way, except for the fact our church was mainly black, and, and that's where we went for our Sunday school and church services. And, yeah. and, uh, and of course, we would have black community picnics from time to time, uh, when basically the families that would go to the church would also get together in the summertime 
for a weekend or two and have a, a big open barbecue bringing together you know, uh, a dozen families or so and, and we'd all have our barbecued hot dogs and chicken and, and so forth together. Uh, and and, uh, and so in that way we, we had a, a sense of, of, a, of a culture but didn't really think of ourselves as being necessarily different uh, from, from others. So I have to say that that really race didn't be, didn't begin to become a conscious yeah. uh, thing in my life until I was a teenager. Yeah, there was a moment early on, um, before you were a teenager, where you, you write in the book that you had an idea of superiority, say, and, and that had to do with, say, um, because one was older, they were probably more superior than the younger people, right? Oh, yeah. Well, um, as much as I say that my childhood was essentially raceless, uh-huh. I mean, my, my actual growing up, I wasn't really thinking much about, very much about it. But when I was four years old, uh, three uh, white boys uh, who were schoolboys, uh, and so uh, my brothers and I were, were not in school yet. I think I was in, in kindergarten. Uh, but we happened to be at home, and our father was at home with us because he worked nights, mm-hmm. and so he was at home with us. And and uh, and we were playing in front of the front of our house of must have been May or maybe even June of 1964, and I'm four years old, and I, and I see these three older white boys, schoolboys, coming up the street, and they begin to pick up rocks and throw them at my brothers and I, and of course call us the N word which I had never really heard before. Mm-hmm. And I just simply knew that, that it was a, an aggressive word. But, you know, look, like everybody else uh, back in the day, I was watching a lot of uh, cartoons, Bugs Bunny and the Roadrunner and all of that as, as a boy. And so I knew that when somebody throws a rock at you, you've got to pick one up and throw it back. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that's what I started to do. I pick, started to pick up rocks, and my brothers and I too, my brothers as well, and to throw them back at the at the three white boys, and as they had called us the N word, I called them the N word because so I had no idea what it meant mm-hmm, or anything. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. And yeah. and but I'd like to think that they were at least momentarily kind of surprised. <laughs> yeah, 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 and freaked out that maybe they were also the N word. Sure. Too, yeah. Right. But my father was home, and he called us, uh, my brothers and I, or my two brothers and I, into the house. And sat us down in front of a mirror, and I and I clearly remember this because it was a, a searing moment. I had thought that I sort of, when my father called us indoors and then told the other boys, the three white boys, to to go home and, and so on, I was sure I was in trouble because I was the oldest, and and so I could I could you know maybe get a beating or something like that. Uh-huh. So I was very nervous about what was going to happen next. But he sat us in front of a mirror and told us to look at ourselves in the mirror, and he had two sugar bowls, one full of white sugar, one full of brown sugar. And he told us, look at yourselves in the mirror and look at the brown sugar. You're brown like the brown sugar. And we were like, yes, Daddy, yes, that's, that's right. Mm-hmm. And he said, those three uh, boys who were bothering you, they're white like the white sugar. Yes, that's right, yes. And he said, some white sugar people don't like brown sugar people but don't use that word that they were using. And that was it. Mm-hmm. But that was the beginning. You know, as much as I talk about not really being terribly conscious about race as a boy, uh, that nevertheless was the introduction to a life that was going to be partly 
uh, defined or implicated uh, in my reactions or my relations uh, with the majority white uh, uh, population citizenry uh, who are going to be making a lot of decisions that were going to impact myself, my brothers, my father, my mother, for that matter. It's a powerful moment in the book, this scene that you just described with, with your uh, brothers and your, and your father. Um, this uh, goes to another part of the book that I, I really enjoyed, is when you talk about your parents, Bill and Jerry. By the way, did, did you ref- did you call them that? By the oh first no! Time? Yeah. No, no, no! It was always mom, daddy, mommy, daddy, yeah. dad. You know, no, no. I I used the first names only to give myself a little bit of distance. Right, right, yeah. Right, but, but no, I w- they would never have allowed uh, <laughs> uh, me or my brothers to address them by the first name. Never, and nor are nor any of our relatives. And mm. even when adult adults. Uh, strangers to my my brothers and I would come to our home. It was always Mister and Missus in those yeah, days. Yeah. Of course, there wasn't Ms. yet, so uh-huh. Mister and Missus or Miss so and so. Yeah, we were we were. Uh, my father was a big stickler for courtesy and politesse, politeness, and and uh, and felt that if we demonstrated politeness for others, then we should have politeness returned to us. They're such fascinating people individually, and um, they're, they're probably some of the more exciting parts of the book when I read about them. Um, what is the um, what is the family situation like? Because um, your ancestors are, are um, they figure prominently as well, even people that you've never met growing up. Um, because there was such ex- there were such expectations on not not just you but all of you in terms of, of how to, to conduct or comport yourselves as, as you were growing up. Did, did you feel that viscerally, say? Oh, yes, because, uh, as I say, my father was a stickler for uh, proper comportment and behavior and so on. And if we stepped out of line, he would be very quick to correct us with his belt mm. um, upon our derriers, uh to make sure that we would not commit any future infraction of that sort, whatever it was. Um, and, and so we had to be very correct uh, in our conduct. And if we were not, then we should expect uh, some kind of correction or punishment uh, as a result. And that was partly because of the fact that, that um, uh, we had as relatives people like Portia White, Mm. Uh, the first international black Canadian star of anything, really, but mm-hmm. especially of song uh, and the stage. And, and she was our great aunt, my father's aunt. And so uh, my father and his mom and, and my father's siblings always made sure that we knew about Portia White and how great she was, and that she had sung before the Queen in 1964, that she had Lauren Green and Dinah Christie as her pupils, for crying out loud. Uh, so we were just one step removed from royalty, or two, two degrees removed from royalty through our, through our uh, aunt, great aunt. So uh, if you're going to be that close to royalty, you know, you, you've got to act in a, in a certain way. Uh, you've got to be a little bit wriggle. And certainly my father carried himself that way, and my mom as well. Uh, and that sort of trickled down, so to speak, to my brothers and I, um, that more was expected from us, that we were expected to be good boys and, and to do well in school. 
Uh, and then later on, as we continued, of course, to mature, um, we became aware of, of other uh, relatives of ours who had uh, achievements uh, that they could talk about. Uh, of course, my great-grandfather, uh, William Andrew White, and, and, uh, and then his uh, son, uh, Jack White, who was a, a major uh, labor leader in, in Ontario, and then our, uh, also yet another great-uncle, uh, Bill White, uh, who was called to the Order of Canada in 1971? So we had uh, all these folks in our in our background that we had to uh, live up to their legends, and at the same time, and I got to say this because you know, people may not realize it, but uh, look, slavery ended in the United States in 1865 with the final victory of the Union Army over over the Confederacy uh, in 1865. I'm born in 1960, so if you take a generation that's been 20 years, I'm the fifth generation born outside of slavery. I'm only five generations myself born outside of slavery in the United States. But my father is the fourth generation. His mom was the, was the third generation. Uh, and actually, I got the generations wrong. Forgive me. I better, I better repeat, repeat this and get it right. I'm the fourth generation born outside of slavery. My father is the third. His mom was the second, uh, and his and and her father, my great grandfather, was the first. So I'm only four generations removed from slavery. Right. And so as as my father and then his mother before him were closer to to that moment of of historical liberation. So it was important that each succeeding generation prove itself, prove ourselves to be worthy. Of 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 the promises of equality and liberty, yeah. so that we could not afford to to slide uh, into uh, into poverty if we could avoid it. We could not afford to slide into illiteracy if we could have, if we could avoid it. Uh-huh. We could not afford to slide or be pushed into criminality if we could avoid it. Every generation of my family. Uh, writ large, coming out of slavery for you know, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh generations on, has had the same uh, uh, demand placed upon us by our ancestors that we have to prove that we are equal, that we uh, uh, must uh, be treated with dignity, and that our liberty must no longer be tampered with in any way, shape, or form. And so these are the pressures that also devolved upon my brothers and I, yeah. whether we whether we liked it or not, and whether we understood it or not. But these were what we were called to live up to. These were the ideals that we were called to live up to, even as even as children. So, do you think that conveys some undue pressure or unnecessary pressure on a child, say? Oh my! Well, certainly. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, undue, perhaps. Uh, you know, it's an extra, extra obligation, yeah. maybe, to, to think that that you you can't let down uh, the family name and you cannot let down uh, a sense of propriety and a, and and a sense of of uh, noblesse oblige and and a sense of of uh, of always having to prove yourself to be worthy. Of, of of equality and, and liberty, and there is a downside to that. And I talk about that in the memoir, of course, mm-hmm. because 
uh, for many oppressed people, uh, black people among them uh, in North America, uh, no matter how much one may struggle to get ahead, you may not. You may not get ahead. And it may sure. not be through any fault of your own. Yeah. Uh, but you are forced into or find yourself stuck in a secondary, tertiary position, especially economically, politically, uh, and so on. Um, and, and so the pressure on us to strive, and I, I, I talk about this division between the strugglers, mm -hmm. those who are struggling simply to survive, and then the strivers, those who are striving to, to find success and to prove their equality, uh, can also be a bit of, can also lead to a perversion of family feeling. And what I mean by that is if you put too much emphasis on, on the necessity to prove mm -hmm. your equality uh, to people who maybe are actually your inferior or your inferiors, so to speak, uh, in terms of attainment and intellect and uh, uh, talent and so on, uh, then you also run the risk of isolating yourself from your own people, from your own family connections, uh, for the sake of, of establishing, establishing yourself as, as a person of stature, as someone who has overcome, as someone who has striven and achieved. Um, and I think that those pressures were, were present for us. Uh, for my extended family, the white uh, family, uh, not in terms of color, they were black people, but the white family uh, uh, based in Nova Scotia and, and somewhat in Ontario, uh, and, then, and then ourselves, the Clarks, as a, as a branch of the white family, uh -huh. um, and felt that, that we had to live up to the uh, standards established by my great-grandfather, uh, Reverend Captain Dr. William Andrew White. And the fact that he has those three honorifics, Reverend Captain Doctor, Doctor Captain Reverend, yeah, Captain yeah, Reverend yeah. Doctor, however you want to, to, to line out that train of honorifics, uh, uh, set an example uh, that is uh, uh, both stellar and daunting. And for everyone who has striven to to match those achievements or try to match those achievements, uh, certainly it's it's uh, been uh, or they have or he has been a pole star, a north star in and of himself yeah. in terms of, of directing uh, an attitude towards uh, a, a achievement or striving to achieve. And at the same time, if you do not achieve, if you do not strive, and you end up being a struggler instead. Does that mean that you are less than? Does that mean you are not as good as? And if those are the attitudes that are visited upon someone who is viewed as being failed or a failure and, and so on, does that mean that, that that person or those people or those relatives are now somehow uh, cast into disrepute forever or are, or are sort of uh, exiled uh, from from family fellowship, uh, and does it also mean that for those who strive and succeed, that they pay a price in terms of alienation and being separated from their own kin, separated from their own people? And I raise these questions in the memoir, uh, 
Yeah. And I'm not going to say I have an answer for them. Uh, but I do think that these are risks that, that we run uh, when we put uh, success and achievement, and this is actually an old story, above, uh, potentially putting them above uh, 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 standing with our family and mm-hmm. struggling with our family and struggling with our community uh, to try to overcome whatever pernicious circumstances we may face. Let me put it this way, uh, to put it in more concrete terms. Barack Obama becomes the first black president of the United States. This is a great symbolic achievement. It's a wonderful thing. And what a role model for subsequent generations and, and those alive right now, for that matter. Yeah. On the other hand, I think you, we can ask the question, how much was the black community itself uplifted? How much advancement was there for black Americans in general? Because one of their own had become, had had been elected to the highest office available to any American. And, of course, those questions are rhetorical, but I would say that given the fact that uh, there's been a necessity for the Black Lives Matter movement in the U.S. as well as in Canada, mm-hmm. one could raise the question about how much, uh, how much in effect uh, did... Uh, Barack Obama's personal success um, trickled down, to use a very bad metaphor here, uh, to uplift all other African Americans. And and I think that is an open question. And I also think that the movement of Black Lives Matter does suggest an answer, which is, in essence, not very much. Mm. So it's a long way of saying, once again, that personal success for uh, an individual from an oppressed community is never enough to uplift the entire community. And that what uh, gifted or concerned or compassionate or, or folks interested in organizational unity need to do is organize collectively to try to raise everyone which doesn't mean that individuals cannot still achieve stellar acclaim and success for themselves, which will also reflect on the community. But it also means that the community itself is uplifted and, and, and uh, assisted in, in scaling whatever challenges might be there uh, before the entire community, whether we're talking about education or policing um, or access to uh, 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 forms of, of uh, ascension, whether we're talking about uh, uh, talent uh, that can be uh, parlayed into, into athletics or art or, for that matter, politics or, or any of the sciences or engineering and so on, um, that, it's, that it's important that we make it possible uh, that the strivers make it possible for the strugglers to also mm. strive and achieve. When you look back at your life and you ponder uh, and question identity, as you as you do throughout uh, the book, and I'm assuming you did that uh, as you were writing the book, um, do you find at this time of life that, that, that a lot of those questions, uh, settled is not the right word because I guess identity is never settled, um, but, but are there things that you know now that you wish you knew then? I have to say that that 
uh, it's the old saying, if I only known then what I know now. And it's so true. Um, and, of course, I try to impart whatever wisdom I may have now to my daughter, who's, who's turned 23 now. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and, uh, and I don't blame her. She says, oh, no, uh, Dad, I think, you know, I've got a better way of thinking about things. <laughs> That's okay. And it's, the, it's the old cycle, right? Sure. But uh, I, I think I have come to value more in my now senior years uh, the fact that I that I do come from uh, this community which survived uh, the rigors of transatlantic slavery, the oppressiveness of, of that slavery, who ended up in colonial Canada, and when they arrived in colonial Canada, uh, slavery was still legal here until 1834, mm-hmm. and my maternal ancestors arrived uh, along with Cherokee, from the United States um, in around 1813 on the South Shore of Nova Scotia and, and intermarried with Cherokee and likely uh, Mi'kmaq as well, the indigenous people of Nova Scotia, uh, and, and thereby creating a blended uh, uh, community that I describe as, as Afro-Métis, which is how I see myself, mm-hmm. and, and also Africadian, uh, to use my term. And and uh, and that this is a very distinct culture. And I like to remind folks that that uh, African Nova Scotia, Africadia, is is one of the foremost expressions of an African identity in the North Atlantic world. No one ever thinks about it that way, but we are probably amongst ourselves the, uh, along with other Canadians, other African Canadians the northernmost expression possible mm-hmm. of, of African culture uh, in the northern hemisphere and based on the North Atlantic. And, and I think now I, I try to honor all of that and also whatever European admixture I may have. And I probably do have some because uh, you can't, uh, most of us, were not, our ancestors are not going to get through slavery with some, without some degree of let me just put it this way, admixture mm-hmm. or intermixture. Uh, and, and, uh, and that helped create the conditions for uh, a special culture, a separate culture, not better than anybody else's, but certainly our own. And worth, and worth honoring, worth remembering, mm-hmm. worth celebrating, worth extending. You know, uh, everything from the land ownership, uh, as terrible as the land was that the colonial governments took from indigenous people and gave to and gave to uh, black migrants and ex-slaves uh, and people fleeing slavery in in Nova Scotia. Uh, so yes, our ancestors were given the worst possible land available deliberately to force them to become a class of, of cheap labor, perpetually a class of cheap labor available to be exploited by. Uh, white employers, uh, and uh, uh, and there was an apartheid structure to oh. black settlement in Nova Scotia. But those are the negatives. The positives are that we managed to create our own community. Without much support from African America, without much support from the West Indies, without much support, actually no support from Africa itself, so there we were, there our ancestors were, a few thousand people of African heritage mixed with indigenous people somewhat stranded 
uh, in a place that the loyalists called Nova Scarcity, uh, in a series of several dozen little black communities, which are basically villages, mm-hmm. not towns, just villages, or, or sections of Halifax, the capital, or sections of Sydney in, in, in industrial Cape Breton. Uh, and we ended up forging our own culture uh, with our own ways of speech, which I'm not a very good example of because I just lived too long mm-hmm. away from Nova Scotia and and uh, and was imbued with just a little too much standard English, Queen's English, <laughs> as a boy growing up, which is certainly a desire of my father. Yeah. Uh, but nevertheless, we do have our own form of English, African Nova Scotian vernacular English, and and uh, music and and uh, cuisine for that matter. So um, I, you know, at this point in my life, I feel that I I need to continue to honor that and the accidental beauty of its of its creation um, against uh, all odds and all obstacles thrown at us, yeah. flung at our ancestors by the colonial government and and the elites of of uh, Nova Scotia and and, uh, and uh, other uh, British colonies, um, our British North American colonies, and and uh, and that survival means means something. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why I titled the memoir "Where Beauty Survives," yeah, yeah. despite all attempts to wipe it out and or it, to or to make our conditions, our ancestral, our ancestors feel so unwelcome and so burdened by poverty and hyper policing that they would that they would up and leave and maybe go to the Boston states, uh-huh. as we call it, or call New England and, yeah. and uh, the Maritimes. Or, or go down the road to Hogtown, or maybe to Montreal, yeah. and and uh, try to make a, a life for ourselves in, in those cities. Uh, but uh, enough, enough of the people remained in Nova Scotia to to create a distinctive culture uh, as part of the African diaspora, but at the same time, uh, it's so resolutely. Uh, Canadian and and present uh, in this in this uh, nation, whether anybody likes it or not. Uh-huh. Yeah, you, you you honor that legacy, that community that has endured. Um, you, near the end of the book, uh, you you uh, talk about the people that you mourn daily. What what, what does it mean to you now um, to know that that um, a lot more people will know these people? Especially your, your I'm a mother and your father, <laughs> because of course, all of my faults and foibles are on display as much as anybody else's. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of my parents, especially here. Um, but I also think that hey, that's our humanity. That's our humanity. Uh, you know, far be it from me to, to say that anybody, uh, any reader, is going to have a a, a totally satisfactory, perfect. Uh, 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 family life or childhood and so on, and blessings to them, if, or him, her, they, if in fact they, they can say that. Uh, but I'm still going to think that that's a, a, a great minority mm-hmm. uh, who would be able to make those kinds of claims. So I, I'd like to think that, the, that what readers can take away from this is that despite... Uh, Despite sometimes unfortunate choices in dealing with difficult circumstances, 
it's my thinking about poverty, and I'm thinking about racism. I'm also thinking about sexism, for mm-hmm. that matter. And that, and that parents can sometimes make choices that, or decisions that one can say upon reflection, especially as an adult, w- would not have been the choices that oneself would have made. Sure. On the other hand, um, uh, my parents, and like myself as a parent, uh, tried to do the best they could with what they understood about the circumstances that they had inherited and what they thought we might face, my brothers and I, growing up. And, and that being human, being flawed people, they made mistakes. And I, can, and I can identify them, and I do identify what I consider to have been their mistakes. On the other hand, I've made my own, yeah. <laughs> most definitely. And, and I plead for forgiveness from my daughter, uh, which I believe that, that uh, she has extended already and, and may continue to extend to me, I pray. And at the same time, I also honor my parents because as much as I may demur from some of their decisions or question some of their choices, they were good people. Mm-hmm. They were marvelous people. My father had a great gift for vocabulary and art and political insights and history, which all of which he loved greatly. And, and my mom uh, founded at least two daycares in Halifax, yeah, and they're both yeah. still running. Yeah. Fifty years later, they're still running. And, and uh, uh, she had a great love for children of all sorts. All backgrounds. Alexa McDonough worked for my mom, for crying out, the former leader of the NDP. She was your kindergarten teacher, right? She was my kindergarten teacher because she worked for my mom. Yeah. So yeah. I, these were like two very remarkable people. I'm lucky that they were my parents. I love them very much still. Yeah. And, I'm, and I'm sorry that I am bereft of them and have been for 20 years in terms of my mom and, and 15 years in terms of my dad. So, so um, I miss them. Uh, very much, and I hope that uh, if they're looking down and, and leaking through the book with me uh, and so on, that they will not cringe at some of my descriptions. But rather, I hope, um, uh, smile with a, with a sage smile to say, yes, these were errors. And, and yes, son, you've made your errors. Uh, and yet, look, you know, um, uh, we did raise raise you and your brothers the best as, as best as we could, and and we cannot say that you have let us down terribly. Mm. Uh, at least I'd like to say, at least I would like to think that they would say that. Um, and I have reason to believe, especially after finding my father's papers after yeah, he passed yeah, away, yeah. that that he did come to regard us uh, with a great deal of of honor and pride and love and respect, uh, even if uh, we didn't always, I shouldn't try to speak for my brothers, but I'll just say even if I didn't sometimes feel uh, that, that these were uh, the ways in which he regarded us. But certainly um, after his passing, I, I found evidence that, that uh, that's exactly how he felt about us. There's a beautiful scene at the at, uh, near the end of the book where uh, you're at, a, a, I guess, a book signing or a, or a speaking engagement where uh, someone comes up to you who is a passenger of your father's and, and, and um, gets a book signed. And I, I, I don't want to spoil it because it's such a powerful moment in the book. 
Um, you mentioned your brothers just to say, I, I know I should let you go, but I, there's just one other question. Um, you mentioned your brothers. Um, what have they made of, of um, what's depicted in the book? Because these are their parents, too. Well, I, I, have, I just sent them copies of the book uh, last week. Uh, I have heard from one of my brothers, the youngest, who, who uh, felt that, that, um, uh, that just my, my discussion online over email with him about our, our late father uh, was pretty accurate. And he, and he gave me some other anecdotes uh-huh. um, that are not in the text, but which verified my, my perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, my other brother has not uh, pronounced himself either way on it, um, although I hope that he will not feel that I was, that I was incorrect mm-hmm. in, in my judgment. On the other hand, we are three separate individuals, and he may have a whole different set of memories sure. yeah. uh, connected to our parents than, than I or my other brother. Um, and that's all there is to it. On the other hand, it's my memoir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> These are my memories. Yeah. And, I don't, and I do not try to speak for them in, in the text um, or, or to go too much into their own experiences of, of our family life, um, uh, but have to resolutely stick to my recollections, which are mine. And, and which I have to trust, uh, but which I'm also, I also know could be verified uh, by my brothers or mm-hmm. by other relatives. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I'll say is, as, a, as a closing thing, and this is, this is really immensely tricky at the same time as it, as it is satisfying or maybe rewarding in some ways. Uh, look, uh, I, I do describe um, harsh discipline mm-hmm, mm-hmm. from my father towards my brothers and I, and, and our mother. Your mother, yeah. And, and I, I try to explain why he behaved the way he did. Um, and uh, one of my brothers wrote me last week to say that my discussion of that fact um, led to other relatives coming forward and saying, well, we had similar experiences mm. with our father um, and, and uh, probably for similar reasons. And I think that's healthy. I do, and I think that that promotes our greater understanding of ourselves and the forces that created us. Yeah. And at the same time, I hope that it does not lower anybody in our esteem and that, in fact, that we can come to know and honor and love uh, our difficult ancestors uh-huh. uh, with the understanding of what it was they were reacting against in trying to raise ourselves with love and something like a degree of material comfort that they themselves may not have known. Mm. And, and um, I urge people to, to, to read the book because you, you are you explain the nuance and you explain obviously the baggage that that, that, w- that an individual carries that we all carry from from our heritage and so forth. Um, I, I, I must let you go, but uh, I, I can't thank you enough for for the time you've spent uh, talking about this book. Congratulations on it, uh, George. Good luck with it, and, and 
I know that uh, people who read the book, as I did, will, will feel better for, for having done so. Thank you. Joseph, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Take good care. The book is called Where Beauty Survived, an Africadian Memoir. It is published by Knopf. Its author, uh, George Elliott Clark, joined me on the line from Toronto in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plunder.